Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good to see you here this morning. I hope you all had a great week. I know for many of you it was uh, your uh, fall break. It was a fall break for uh, my, my family, at least for my kids. And so we went out to Disneyland. We just got back from Disneyland last yesterday, yesterday afternoon, and we're there all week. And so uh, if I look a little different this morning, this is the afterglow of Disneyland. It was the, the afterglow of spending way too much money on junk food and way too much time in lines waiting for kids' rides. Um, this, is, this is what it looks like. So if you ever wondered, Disneyland, see, Disneyland is one of those places for me, at least, that I, can, I, I both really love and really hate at the same time. And I, get, it, it, I don't know how they do it, but in the same moment, I can feel like this is a place that I want to spend the rest of my life in and never leave. And also, when can I get out of this place as soon as possible? So it's kind of both at the same time. Um, but this has been, uh, it's, been a, it's been a good week for us, it's been exciting. My youngest, is, it was his first time at Disneyland, and so that's always a great experience, and, uh, and so we're excited. But we're excited to be back, excited to be home, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning as we, as we get back into our series called True North. Uh, this is the third week and the last week, the final week of our short series where we have been looking at what it means to uh, have True North as a focus of who we are as a church, and we've been asking this question what does it mean to look? What does it mean uh, to be the church, and what is the church going to look like as we move forward into our next chapter at North Bible Church? As we feel the Lord leading us towards certain things, and as we do, before we you know move on into all these other directions, we wanted to establish what is True North for us. What is our reference point? You may know that True North is a navigational term. It is essentially what a compass uses to establish all other directional pieces around it. So a compass will identify True North, and then off of True North. Then the compass figures out what west is, what east is, and what south is. And so as we've been talking about true north for us in this series, we've been talking about what are the important essential things that make us the church, and what is our central reference point as we move forward together. Our first week we looked at true king, that true king and his kingdom who is Jesus, and we talked about the fact that as the church, we have to be about Jesus, right? It's, we are Jesus-centered, everything that we do is about Jesus, and if it's not, what's the point of actually being the church? Because it is all about him, we're, we're to glorify him, we are, we are the church because of what he has done, we are the church because of our common identity in him, all of these things. And then as the true king, our true king has a mission for his kingdom. There is a mission in the world. We looked at that last week when we talked about true calling. There is a mission in the world that Jesus is accomplishing according to his redemptive plan from beginning all the way to end. And it has to do with him reconciling all things through the cross, seeking and saving the lost. And we get to join him in that mission. That is our calling as his people. And so then finally, as we get to week three, which is our subject today, which is one I'm really excited about because I love talking about the church, we're going to get a chance to talk about what it means to be the church together, what it means to be true people together in community as disciples of Jesus following him. And so question then is why true people? Why this title, true people? Does that imply somehow that there are false people? Um, well, not necessarily. But I think what this does is remind us of the fact that there is a way to live truly human and there is a way that we can kind of live out false humanity. When we look in the Bible, what we see is that God created us in his image and the degree to which we live out the image of God through us and his character, we are becoming truly human. We are looking like true human beings. Um, and to the degree that we don't, we are actually operating out of false uh, humanity, false humanity. 
And so there is that true people aspect. There is also, we see throughout the Bible, there are references to God's people being his true people. So it's a statement of relationship as well and our connectivity to God, and in particular as the church, our connectivity to Jesus and who he is as kingdom people. So, and there are a lot of ways that God defines who his true people are in the Bible. One of those ways is one that we saw last week where Jesus used the phrase disciples. And in Matthew chapter 28, he looks at the, the 11 disciples at that point before he ascends into heaven, and he says to them, he gives them the great commission, which we also called the great invitation, you're to go and make disciples, right? Disciples. This is one of the words that he uses. You may know that the word disciple means follower, just in a general term. And so you'll hear people, especially today, often refer to themselves as Christ followers or followers of Jesus rather than referring to themselves as Christians. The word Christian and Christ follower actually means the exact same thing. I think one thing, that's, one thing that we've seen, though, is that word Christian has often gotten hijacked, and it means a whole bunch of different things. It means sometimes a hundred different things, depending on its context. And so many people have gotten, gotten back to this focus of, look, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christ follower. I'm not somebody who subscribes to a religion, or I'm not somebody who subscribes to just a belief system. I am actually somebody who follows Jesus, the true king. And whether we call ourselves a Christ follower or a Christian, again, it means the same thing. But I think the point is important to take from this is that Jesus wasn't looking for converts to a new religion. He wasn't looking for people who would just believe in a certain set of doctrines. He was looking for people who would be completely different by their discipleship, by their following of who Jesus is. So that when we become Christians, we are transformed into something completely different than what we were before or who we were before. We live in a new realm. As we're going to see from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, we move from the, the realm of darkness to the realm of light. From the realm of the kingdom of this world to the realm of the kingdom of Jesus and the true king. We, we, we have a new identity. We have a new life. We have a new community that we live with. I mean, these are all things that are new that make us different than who we were before. And so as we talk about discipleship this morning, we talk about what it means to be Jesus' true people. That's what we're going to be focusing on. It's how is it that we are completely different, not just better versions of ourselves, not just J2.0, but how are we something completely different because of what Jesus, through his Spirit, has done in us? And we're going to see that here in 1 Peter chapter 2 in just a couple of minutes. But my hope this morning is that no matter who you are, no matter where you're at in your faith, uh, you might not even be a Christian you might be somebody who's kind of exploring the faith. Maybe you got one foot in, one foot out. You're not really sure about what Christianity is. Or maybe you're somebody who's been faithfully following Jesus for 50 years. Our hope this morning is to discuss what it is that a who it is that a Christian actually is. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? And as we clearly define that together, then the invitation is follow Jesus more closely, no matter where you're at as you see this. So we're going to see that from 1 Peter chapter 2 again here in a minute. But before we get to that, I want to start with this place for us right here. Discussing the Holy Spirit's role in discipleship. What it is that the Holy Spirit, who is God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does in our lives to transform us. In order to see that, we've got to look at a place like Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is widely considered to be the place where the New Testament church begins. It's actually, it's obviously after Acts chapter 1, which is what we looked at last week. But Acts chapter 1, we saw Jesus say to the disciples, go to, go to the city of Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit who will come on you. And then he ascends into heaven. And as they go there, about a week or so later, they're celebrating in the city of Jerusalem the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And in that room, there's a hundred or so 
uh, Christ followers, disciples of Jesus right there in that upper room. And in that room, the Holy Spirit comes on that group of people and fills those believers with his presence. And they become the church, at least the New Testament spirit-age church that we know that we live in even right now. And so from that point on, what we see is the work of the Holy Spirit carrying us through not only the book of Acts, but all the rest of the way through the rest of the church story. And so understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit is essential if we're going to understand what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live in the community of God's people. The Holy Spirit's ministry is wide and far-reaching, and so we won't be able to cover all of it here this morning, but let me just put it this way. The Holy Spirit, in general terms, applies the blessings of Jesus' salvation work in his life, death, and resurrection to our lives. So let me put it this way. How are we saved? Well, we're given regenerate hearts and minds to believe the Word of God, to believe the gospel of Jesus, and then we're convicted of sin. We trust in Jesus and we repent for our salvation. Why we receive the righteousness of Jesus that's applied or imputed to us, and then we are made into new, new creations according to the resurrection of Jesus. And that as we grow in our spirituality, as 2 Corinthians says, we are transformed from one degree of Christ-likeness to another as the Holy Spirit produces Jesus' character in us, otherwise known as the fruit of the Spirit, and then we are given spiritual gifts to serve in the church to glorify Jesus. Now, all of that which I just said is not even exhaustive of what the Spirit does, but all of that is what the Spirit does. In other words, everything I just talked about there is Spirit-initiated and Spirit-carried out. We participate in it, especially in terms of our own spiritual growth and serving out of the spiritual gifts, but at the same time, we are completely dependent upon God the Spirit to do that in us. He applies the blessings of the work of Jesus completely to our lives. So with that in mind, one of the things that we realize is that primarily what the Holy Spirit does is make us into a new creation. We're going to look at that here this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you'll open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, or if you have your devices, and if you don't have any of that, it's going to be up on the screen for you so you can read along as well. But 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll give you a little bit of background into this letter if you're not familiar with it. This was a letter that was written by Peter the Apostle to the churches in the first century. Okay, we know this as a general epistle because unlike Paul, for example, Paul's more specific epistles, it was not written to a particular church in a particular location like the church of Ephesus or the church of Galatia or something like that. It was actually written to the entire first century church and it was designed to be circulated among the churches in the, early first, in the, uh, in the first century. And so what Peter's writing, though, is he is writing specifically to a target audience. He's written this letter to the audience of Christians who are dealing with persecution, which was widespread throughout the Roman Empire at this point of Peter's writing. He's seen it, he's experienced it, and so he writes this to encourage those Christians who are facing persecution, in some cases, maybe possibly losing their job, losing their family, maybe losing their freedom, being thrown in jail, or possibly even facing the prospect of losing their lives simply for believing in Jesus. So at this point, persecution was pretty intense, and Peter is writing to them to encourage them and to remind them, this is who you are, and this is what Jesus has done. This is the kindness and the goodness of God that you have seen through Jesus and the gospel, that you are not just people who believe in some kind of philosophy or some kind of religion. You have actually been made into something new with a new hope and a new future. 
This is kind of, I love 1 Peter and 2 Peter, especially for discipleship, because if you think about it, when you're facing persecution, it makes you really question your faith. It makes you really ask at least the question of, is this worth it? If I'm going to face losing my job, if I'm going to face losing my family or even my life, I better be sure that the thing that I'm about to die for is actually true. And this is what Peter is writing to convince the Christians of, writing to convince us of that it is, in fact, true. In fact, it's so true, it's affected you at your very level of identity and who you are. So, 1 Peter chapter 2 says this in verse 1. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil, or an envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I think one thing that you might notice as you read through this passage is how much contrast Peter uses. At one point, this is who you are. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You were once, uh, you were once people who were, who, were, who were basically tied to the passions of the flesh, but now you can cast that off because you have been given a new heart and because you have been made new. You were once people who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were once people who lived in the realm of darkness, but now he has called you into his marvelous light. Do you see this? You see over and over again how Peter says, look, this is who you used to be. Now you are something completely and wholly different. There's a new nature, a new identity, and even new desires and passions that have been given to you by the Spirit. I think this is one of the key things to recognize about discipleship. You see it happen here with Peter. He recognizes that as much as it is important to how we live, what we say, and what we do, Ultimately, the core of discipleship is not what we say and what we do. It's actually deeper than that. It's based on two other questions first and foremost. Why and who? In other words, why do we do the things that we do? And that's a level of desire. That's a reference to desire. Why is it that we want the things we want? Why is it that we do the things we do? And then secondly, who? Who are we? This is a question of identity. Who do we believe ourselves to be? Now, the Spirit knows because of course he created us, that he knows that that is exactly the level at which he needs to work on our hearts to bring us transformation and real discipleship. 
Now, Satan also knows that. And you can see, just by evidence in our culture, that he has wreaked havoc in those two areas in particular and is wreaking havoc all over the place, the area of desire and the area of identity. But Peter says to them two things about reminding them, reminding these Christians about the desire of their heart and their identity. First, he says this. He says, look, you have come to Jesus by faith. And you have found him to be good. He uses a reference, kind of a rephrasing of Psalm 37, where we're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, you have tasted Jesus, or you have known Jesus, and you have found out that he is good. Now, as you come to him, which is a continual phrase, as you continue to come to him by faith, remember that he is good. He is the one who gives you the desires of your heart, the way that they're supposed to be. As true people, he reforms and changes even the things that you desire at a heart level. And he says to them, look, crave that spiritual milk, which is obviously a a reference, as he says, a reference to the necessity of what an infant needs to feed on. For us as Christians, it's a spiritual metaphor that talks about the necessity of being and knowing Jesus, or being with and knowing Jesus. So through his word, through prayer, through worship, these are all ways that we feed on the spiritual milk knowing that Jesus is good in the midst of it. And the spiritual milk is not just a means to nourishment or a means to something else. It itself is something that is enjoyable, and it itself is its own reward. That's kind of how this is phrased, right? You've tasted the milk, and you've tasted that it is good, and that it is also good for nourishment and growth. I think about this in terms of, like, natural food or normal food that we eat, right? Very few times are the best things, are the things that taste the best, also good for you? Have you noticed that before? I don't know if you noticed that before. But what's your favorite food, for instance, right? Is it maybe cheeseburgers, ice cream, chocolate cake, pizza, steak, ribs? I mean, I love all those foods, but none of them are really that great for you necessarily, right? I mean, if you eat those things in large quantities, it will do damage to your health over time. Now imagine if there was a food like this, like ice cream, that tasted still like ice cream, not like the frozen yogurt or fake stuff, but like the real ice cream stuff, like a custard, for example, that you could eat, and as you ate it, it would cause you to lose weight. As you ate it, it would actually clear out your arteries and make you stronger and trimmer and more fit and maybe even reverse the signs of aging, right? I mean, we would eat that stuff until we couldn't force any more down our throats, There'd be a riot over at Costco because people would be trying to buy it in bulk as much as they could and stock up on it. And yet that's what Peter says. He says, this is what spiritual milk looks like. It is good, it tastes great, and it's going to make you healthier spiritually than anything else possibly could. This is the spiritual milk of the Word. It's the spiritual milk of prayer. It's the spiritual milk of worship, of experiencing and worshiping Jesus. And he gets back to this place where he says, look, We come to him by faith knowing that he is good. And how do we know that he is good? Because he has done all of these things. He has made us completely new. And he goes down this list of who we used to be versus who we are now in Christ. You are living stones built up as a temple, built up as a house of worship. You are chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God. And a lot of these terms are pulled out of the Old Testament, so they're not just metaphors without meaning. In fact, they're full of meaning. And as Peter is repeating this, he's encouraging the Christians by saying, look, this is who you are. You are people whom God has chosen, 
and brought together as a temple to be living stones, stones of worship, who are joined by the cornerstone who is Jesus, to give spiritual praise for what he has done. You are a royal priesthood. You are people who have a unique connection to God. You are people who follow your king and serve your king joyfully. You are people who are a holy nation. Just as Israel was in the Exodus, you are a showcase nation to where the rest of the nations can see who God is by what he is doing in and through you as the church. So the rest of the world sees who Jesus is by what he does by his spirit through us and into the world. And then finally, you are a people of God's own possession. It's a personal term that kind of, uh, that, that kind of brings to mind the image of family. You've become God's family together. You are the people of God. And look, I think what's also really great about this central metaphor that takes stage, this living stones metaphor from 1 Peter chapter 2, is notice how these things are all connected to each other. Right? He says, you are living stones who have been brought together. In fact, all of these terms that he uses are all communal terms. He doesn't say you're a living stone. He says you are living stones. He doesn't say you're a chosen person or you are a chosen individual. He says you are a chosen people. He doesn't say you're a citizen. He doesn't say you're just a citizen of a holy nation. He says you are a holy nation together and you are the people of God's own possession. Notice how communally connected this is. He's a living stone is a living stone on its own, but when it's brought together into the building, it becomes a part of the spiritual temple, the, the house of worship, so to speak. So it becomes something bigger than it is on its own when it's joined with other living stones. In Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians 4, he likes to use the imagery of the body of Christ. That apart from the body, you were just a, a, a hand, for example. But if you're a hand that's joined to the body, you are a part of a living thing that is the body of Christ as the church. And so you become something even bigger as a part of God's people, and you actually become living stones or a living organism as you're joined in community. And as this spiritual house is built, and as the stones are joined together, they are all dependent upon one another. I think about what we're doing right now as we meet on Sunday mornings for corporate worship. We meet in a corporate worship service. This is a perfect picture of what this is supposed to look like. And that's why, and I actually like the term worship service. I know people use worship gathering and worship other stuff, and I don't have, no, I don't have anything against that, but to say that I prefer the term worship service because it communicates what we're here to do on a Sunday morning. Everybody comes to a worship service, you're expected to participate and be a part of serving joyfully the king who has made us part of his royal priesthood and so as we worship together whether you're singing or whether you're even just sitting here now just listening and responding we are participating in worship together and even as flawed as it may be at times we are offering glory and praise as a spiritual temple as living stones together to king jesus that's what we do on sunday morning I think it's important to realize because what that tells me is that when I show up here on Sunday morning, it's not about me. It's not about the music I like. It's not about whether or not I like the preacher. It's not about whether or not I liked his illustrations. It's not about whether or not, you know, I liked how we did this transition in the service and whether or not it felt right to me. In the end, what we are supposed to be here for is to serve the Lord Jesus and to glorify him together as a community. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but have you ever looked 
Uh, have you ever stopped like during a song or just kind of looked around, especially during a worship song while other people are singing the same song together? Yeah. No? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody? I'm, not get, I'm getting a bunch of blank looks. Like, this is the same reaction I got in first service too. I told him it made me feel kind of creepy because I do this all the time. I love from time to time just to kind of look around at the, at the church as it's gathered together. Because you know what you see? You see parents and kids singing to the Lord together. You see uh, people from different backgrounds who might not otherwise ever be in the same room together, standing next to each other, singing the same words to the same Lord together. You see a 70-year-old man and a 20-something-year-old man standing side by side, singing out praise to the Lord. It's an amazing picture of what this is supposed to look like. The spiritual stones gathered together and joined together in community. So, our discipleship is carried out by the movement of the Spirit in our lives as He applies the work of Jesus to our lives, and it's done within community. Those things are indispensable, and the Holy Spirit, as He works on that level of desires and identity in our hearts and draws us into community, our natural response then, as Peter says here, is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. I mean, think about that. If that really sinks in, if the gospel really sinks into us, and we understand the new identity that we have in Jesus, and we understand what that means and how that changes us from something completely different than what we used to be, it's the natural response to just sit back in awe and wonder and to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that's the church. That's the true people of God as we struggle along together, as we stumble through this together. We are the church who is constantly being built up as a place that glorifies and radiates the glory of Jesus. As we close this series, close today and close this series out, I want to leave you with, uh, I want to leave you with one image. Um, this is an image that you may have seen before. It is, a, uh, it is an image of Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. You may have seen this painting before and not realized what it is. It's pretty popular. We see it everywhere because it's one of the most popular painters' popular works. Okay, so Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. Uh, if you know anything about Vincent van Gogh, you know that he also struggled from mental illness. And this is actually, when he painted this particular painting, he was actually in an asylum struggling from mental illness. And this was his view out of the barred windows uh, that, it, that, were, um, that were there in his room. And he apparently painted this at night, so he memorized kind of what it looked like during the day. And then at night, he painted this. And one of the things that this painting is recognized for is its use of light. You can see everywhere throughout the painting, there is light. Everywhere there's light up in the sky, most notably. That draws your attention. But then you look down onto the, onto the town itself, and you see that the lights are on in the, in the homes and the buildings that are around there. And um, what we understand Van, uh, Van Gogh was doing through this is he was representing um, life and really the presence of God in his use of light here, okay? So even when you see and you look in, in, in the sky and you can see a kind of movement that's going on, he creates all this movement that's going on, and then if you look at it and you look at it quickly, sometimes you might even feel like you see the lights blink because he designed this with all kinds of different movement that's going on, and it's focused, and a big part of this painting is focused on the sky or the heavens, right, where he represents where God is and God's presence. Now, 
The interesting thing about this, Van Gogh grew up a Christian. He was actually a missionary at one point in his life. And so he's kind of struggling with his belief. And as he moved on a little bit later in life and began to struggle and succumb to mental illness, um, he developed a very strained relationship with the church. And so in the middle of this painting right there on the bottom, you can see, if you can make it out, there's a church building there. A couple of things are unique about the church that stand out about the way that he painted it. First of all, the steeple itself is taller in proportion than it normally would be. It's a huge steeple that connects all the way, goes all the way up, like halfway into the sky almost. And then secondly, the church itself is the only building in the painting that does not have a light in it. It has no light on it. It's completely dark on the inside. And what people believe is that, although I don't know that we ever have Van Gogh's words on this, but it fits, so let's go with it, is that Van Gogh was picturing the potential of the church as being the hope that God connects through, right? That God, these are God's true people. But at the same time, his experience with the church and where the church was at at his point is that it was an organization or it was a shell that had no light in it, that had no real presence of God in it. And I show you this for, for really just one big reason. And the play, I pray that this helps us to see both the potential of the church because truly we are God's people, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We are made into God's people. There is huge potential because the very Spirit of God dwells in believers as new creations and then among us in community. But there are times when the world looks at the church and doesn't see the light on. And so I want to encourage us that as we move through this, as we move through this series on into the next series and as we go forward, we're going to continue to hit on these issues of Jesus being our true king, us having a true calling, and what it means to be the true people of God. But here's the thing, is that we have to remember, if the light is going to shine through the church, that he truly is our true king. We have to remember that he is on mission and he's called us to not only have the light, to, to present the light, so that it's not a light that's hidden under a lampshade, but that the world can actually see it. And the way that this happens is by true discipleship happening within the church. Because the mission of God doesn't just extend outside the church, but Jesus told us also to make disciples inside the church, to teach them everything that he has commanded us. And this is what discipleship looks like. When our discipleship is right, we understand what it means to be true people. The other two are related to that an outflow of mission, and a love and a glorification of who Jesus is as we live this out. So I want to pray for us this morning because I don't know what North Bible Church is going to look like in a year, specifically, but I want to keep us focused on true north as we go forward because I really am praying and really am focused on this being what drives us forward. And then the rest of it, we kind of not makeup as we go. Maybe that's the wrong way to say it. But we lead out of that. So let's pray this morning. And as we do, I want to invite the band to join us as we close out in singing together. And maybe during this song, you look around and see some other people singing with you so we can all celebrate together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for what you have done, and who you are. And as we think about what it means to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 
I'll be the first to admit this morning that the word excellency and marvelous is a word that uh, encapsulates a lot more than my imagination can even hold. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that by your Spirit you would expand our imagination so that we can see clearly what it looks like to become something new in Jesus, that a new creation does mean new creation. We have become something new by your Spirit. And even though it may not look that way to us all the time, we are, each of us is probably more acquainted with our own strugglings and our own sufferings and our own difficulties and our own doubts than the people that are around us. But Lord Jesus, you know our heart. Spirit, you know our heart. And we ask that this morning that we would cling to the fact that you have called us your children. You have called us redeemed. You have called us loved. You have called us saved. You have given us eternal life. These are all things that no one can take away. So Lord, I pray that we would see that and we would grow into that reality. That the things that we desire would be like the spiritual milk that both nourishes us, but tastes better than anything else that we can imagine. That as we're called forward, Lord, that we would see ourselves as your true people and all that that means. And we thank you for your grace, Lord Jesus, for your goodness and your kindness. And I pray that if anybody here has not tasted that, that, Lord Jesus, they would experience your goodness, kindness, and grace even this morning. We pray all these things according to your spirit and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. I want to encourage you this week. Um, we are, as, as we go out at the end of this series, right, we've been talking about king, mission, calling, people. And this next week on Sunday, you heard Adam announce it this pa- earlier during the service during announcements, but we are going to be focusing on international missions, and we're going to get a chance to hear from at least a few of our international missionaries that we partner with here at North. And I wish we could say we planned this. It just kind of fell in our lap. We have some missionaries that are from, you know, uh, overseas that are here with us next week. You're going to get a chance to hear from but this is the great thing about all this, is that we've been talking about this. We get a chance to see then what this looks like as we're partnering with people who are on mission all over the world. We see what it looks like to be the light in dark places. We see what it looks like for Jesus to be glorified and be known in places where he is not yet known. And so I want to invite you to be here with us next Sunday. Look forward to it prayerfully, anticipating what God might do in your heart as you hear about these stories about what God is doing all over the place, all over the world. So. Um, encourage you with that as you leave here this morning I just want to say grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday thanks thank you for joining us for this week's message North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale Arizona 
and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.